uh, Isaiah 27, 2 through 13. Uh, if you guys want to flip there in your Bibles and read along with me. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. With that, I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its bows are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word together corporately this morning. And I pray that you would teach us your truth today. God, I pray that we would hear your will for us in your word. I pray that we would perceive that we would be obedient people, God, that we would know uh, what it is that we're to do, God, to give you glory today, God, that we would know what it is that we are to not do to give you glory today. So I pray, God, that as we read the text this morning, I pray that you would use me to help us all to better understand. I pray by your spirit you would lead us, guide us into conviction and all truth this morning. God, all to the end that you might be glorified through us and in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are back in Isaiah this morning, and we're picking up right where we left off. So if you remember right, we, uh, we went through 27 verse 1 last time, and so we are in 27 verse 2 this morning. Uh, and Mallory read the text for us already. I'd like to begin by taking this a little bit at a time. It says in verse 2, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. Let's stop right there. Isaiah begins this chapter by talking about a pleasant vineyard. And not only that, but a song to be sung. And if you can remember back with me, this isn't the first time that Isaiah has pushed us into a song about God's vineyard. But he also did this back in chapter 5. Uh, back in chapter 5, um, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. 
for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Verse 4 says, What was there more for me to do for my vineyard that I have not already done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Okay, so again, we have God's vineyard. And in God's vineyard, he says it is a pleasant vineyard. Some years that might actually translate it a vineyard of wine. That is a vineyard that's ready to be harvested. It is good, it's fruitful, it's healthy, and he wants that vineyard to be, um, uh, to be taken advantage of, that it's, it's ready to be used. But he says in, back in chapter 5, I planted a vineyard, but what came out of that vineyard? Not what I had intended, not what I had desired, but instead what came out was wild grapes as though I hadn't planted them, but they came up out of natural causes, right? Which obviously we know which originated from our sin. So our sin caused the grapes to be wild, but he says, sing of it. There is a day coming when I will have a pleasant vineyard. Sing of that day. So he's not saying that day is not today for them. Back here, when Isaiah's writing, he's saying that, that day is not today, but in that day, there will be a pleasant vineyard. Sing of that day. Let's sing of it. And he continues on in verse 3. He says, I, the Lord, am its keeper, and every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it day and night. He says, every moment I water my vineyard. God is making sure that this vineyard in that day will produce good fruit. That's a significant thing for us to keep in mind here this morning, is that God doesn't plant a vineyard, it pops up, and God takes his hands off of it, and it naturally, by its own causes, produces good fruit. But instead, what does it say? It says, every day, every moment, God is watering his vineyard. Why? So that it might remain healthy. There's never a day, there's never a moment when God ceases to water his vineyard, that his vineyard might be healthy and fruitful. He says, lest anyone punish it, or some of your translations might say harm it, or disturb it, or damage it. Every moment I water it to make sure it's healthy, lest anyone punish it, I keep it day and night. That God is watching over this vineyard, and he's making sure that there's nothing that ever happens in his vineyard that would be harmful. Okay, so nothing is going to grow up and choke out any of the plants, but instead they're going to remain healthy. I want to read, this is, out of, this is out of John 10. Jimmy read this for us earlier, but listen, listen to what it says. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Why? Because no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and none is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This includes something that has been given or we can imagine here something that has been planted, and all that has been planted will be fruitful, and it will never be quenched by something that grows up and kills it. That is, everything that God intends to grow will grow. And he's making sure of it. He's watering it every moment. And if something grows up, he's going to kill it, because that's what he says next. He says, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march again them. I would burn them up altogether. So if thorns and briars in this vineyard were to grow up amongst the healthy plants, what would God do? He said, if any were to grow up, by the way, there are none, but if any were to grow up, I would immediately cut them off. I'd gather them up and they'd be burned. But I'm looking around and in this vineyard, 
there is nothing for me to do that to. In this pleasant vineyard, there are no thorns and briars for God to cut down, but you better believe if one grew up there, he'd cut it down. But there are none. What a vineyard. He says, sing of that day. Sing of that day when you see a vineyard and it is nothing but beautiful and healthy and perfectly good fruit to harvest. Look for a thorn or a briar anywhere. You're not going to find it. Look for one plant that's drying up and withering. You won't find it. But they're all healthy. And they're all producing great fruit. And God's making sure of that. He says, I have no wrath. When is the day when God's wrath is taken away? Because in that day is the day of God's pleasant vineyard. A day when God can look and say, there is no wrath. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are some of whom the wrath of God does not remain. There are some who the wrath of God does remain. He says, if we continue on, verse 5, Or let them lay hold of my protection and let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Okay, verse 5 is talking about these briars and thorns. He says these briars and thorns have two options. If they grow up, I'm going to cut them off, I'm going to gather them together, and they're going to be burned. Or let them lay hold of my protection and let them let me water them. Actually, let me take them and transform them into something completely new. Let them lay hold of who I am and I will water them and I will keep them and I will keep everything away from them that they might grow up to be healthy. But they have to lay hold of my protection because if they don't, the wrath of God remains on them. That is, he'll cut them down and he'll burn them. Verse 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root and Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Okay, so this is not a localized vineyard, we realize, but this is something that's global. It's not fixed to any one particular time, but instead it's fixed from God's point of redemption to all of eternity. That is, it's not a particular place. It's not a particular time. It's not at a particular geographical location. But instead, this fruit is going to fill the whole world. And God is making sure of that. And he's going to water it in such a way that this thing continues to be healthy and grow and will blossom. It's not today, but we're looking forward to that day, so says Isaiah. The days will come when Jacob will take root. And how did Jacob take root? But in the root himself, Jesus Christ. It took root and it began to blossom in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And it is bearing fruit all over the world today. And it is growing. And God is watering it. And if there were any thorns or briars that were to grow up, God would cut them off and he would burn them. Or let those who would be the enemies of God's vineyard lay hold of his protection. Verse 7. A question. If that's the case, if God has a vineyard, and that vineyard is Israel, then, verse 7, they have a question. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? 
What, what an inter- interesting question. Or have they been slain as their, layers, their slayers were slain? So let's, let's figure out who the he's and the them and the they are. Has he struck them, that is, his own people, has he struck his own people as the enemies have struck his people? Has he struck the people of Israel the same way that he struck the enemies of Israel? Because it was devastating. When God strikes down his enemies, God takes a devastating blow to the enemies, right? So the question is, has God done this to Israel because they were thorns and briars? That's the question. So then, has Israel turned out to be thorns and briars and God is cutting them down so as to be burned? Is that the case? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Same question, right? What has God done with his people? Why, why is this question being asked? The question is being asked because the people are hurting. The people feel something terrible is happening to them. And so they have a question. If we are then God's vineyard, as you say, and there will be a day when this vineyard takes shape, then why do I feel like I'm dying and decaying and drying up? Why do I feel as though God is not watering me every day? Why do I feel as though the protection of God is not around me? Why do I feel then that there are thorns and briars growing up all around me and they're going to choke the life out of me? Why do I feel that way? So I have a question for you. Am I God's enemy? Because it feels like I'm being cut down that I might be burned. That's the question. And he says in verse 8, Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath as in the east wind. Therefore, by this guilt of Jacob, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes the stones and altars like chalk stones and crushed into pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. He says, by exile, you have contended with them. I want to show you a map. You'll remember this. Showed it here just a little while ago. I know you can't probably see the details, but you'll see in yellow, there's a star next to the yellow word for Jerusalem. You see where that is. Up north and to the east, really the enemies. Okay, they had some other enemies down some other way. The major enemies at the time we find north and east. Syria, Assyria, Babylon. See all those people over there. Okay, what it says is by exile, he's contending with them. I want to read Isaiah 10, verses 5 and 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. You remember this? The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take the spoil, to seize the plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Okay, God was doing something. He's planned, he's intending to do something with the people of the east, right? And so it says in our text. By exile, you contended with them. He moved them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. The guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Now, when we talk about an atoning, generally, we either talk about one or two things. When we talk about atonement for sin, we either talk about animal sacrifices, atonement, or we talk about the atonement that can only be found in Jesus. The question here is, how can exile be atonement? It says, by exile you atone for their sins. 
in what way can that possibly be atonement? And it says, also, if you look at it, this is the removal of the guilt of Jacob. He'll be atoned for. This is the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes the stones and chalks and all uh, the chalk stones crushed into pieces. Get to that in just a second. Did God remove the guilt of their sin by punishing them with earthly suffering? I'm going to ask that question again. Did God remove the guilt of their sin by punishing them with earthly suffering? Does God remove the guilt of our sin by punishing us with earthly suffering? Well, that one we find easier to answer, don't we? Does God do that? No. Does sometimes you think he is? Yep. I'll remind you of a passage here. Let's ask, ask this question before I read it. I'm going to read out of Hebrews 12. God is love. True. And so you might conclude, God does not want me to ever suffer any kind of suffering or harm. So when you do suffer, bad things happen, life events happen. It must be Satan at work. Because God would never send or allow bad in my life. So there must be a different source. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 13. I want to read it for you. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now listen, we only have to endure things that are difficult, right? Do you ever have to endure something that is completely pleasant and enjoyable? Man, I have to endure eating this pizza right now. I just, I'm going to make it through. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force myself. I can make it. I mean, unless you're in like a pizza eating contest or something. But generally, just find something that you enjoy. I don't have to endure through that. What I have to endure through is hardship. I have to endure through that. Okay, so he says, it is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you're truly a son, a child of God, he will discipline you because he's a good father, and that's what fathers ought to do. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall not much more we be subject to the Father of all spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as what seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness." What is the point of God's discipline? It is for our good that we might share in his holiness. But now it says in verse 11, now listen, the outcome is our good and our holiness. Listen to verse 11 though. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To who? To all? Or to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Why were your hands drooping and your knees weak? Because you were in pain and suffering. Because the hardships of life were wearing you down. This isn't just bad karma here, okay? This isn't just bad circumstances. This isn't just life beating you up, it is also not God punishing you to remove the guilt of your sin. 
all the punishment for your sin. I have said this before, and I'll say it again, probably till the day I die. I'll tell myself too. All the punishment for your sin has been taken on Jesus Christ. There is none left to give to you. So then why do I experience pain and suffering? It's for discipline's sake, and it always feels painful, but listen, it is not for punishment's sake, it is for discipline's sake. All discipline in the moment seems painful. It hurts. At least if you're disciplined right, it hurts. But then later, what does it yield? The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is, I don't want to be disciplined again because that hurt. Therefore, I'm going to make a better decision this time. Right? Okay, but for some of us, we end up being disciplined for the same thing over and over. For those of you who are parents, what your children do to you, you discipline them for the same thing over and over, that's what you do. That's what you do. And your father is a better parent than you. So you better believe punishment is coming. Why? Because he wants you to be trained. <coughs> he wants you to be trained and fruitful. Now, going back to this being our, we, us being God's vineyard, the vineyard needs to be pruned. It needs to be watered. It needs to be cared for. Right? God doesn't just let it go, but he makes sure that his vineyard will produce good fruit. You realize that if you have faith in Christ, you are now part of God's pleasant planting, that you are part of this vineyard, and God is caring for you, and every moment he's watering you. But he doesn't just leave you to your own. He's going to make sure that you're going to produce the fruit necessary to be part of his vineyard. Can there be dead bushes in the vineyard of God? Can there be one that's dying and decaying? No. God cuts that off before it gets that way. He makes sure that his plants are pleasant and are fruitful. In fact, if there is such a one that's not fruitful but it is dead, he cuts it off and he burns it because it doesn't belong in his vineyard. people of God face discipline. The discipline of God produces a more obedient people. The discipline of God produces fruit. Now, here's the fruit that it produced in this circumstance. It says, therefore, by the guilt, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes the stones of the altars like chalk stones, and they're crushed into pieces. No ashram or incense altars remain standing. So by the exile, God is disciplining and shaping his vineyard, right? And, <coughs> excuse me. And here's the momentary fruit that comes out of this. Now, if God could just do this all the time, why did ever did he need Christ, Right? Because he doesn't want something that, it, that just is, is shaped on the outside, but he needs something that has a new heart and takes root and grows. We can only do that through Christ. And so what we see here is a small picture of what Christ will come and do. 
he says, by this, the guilt of Jacob's atoned for, the removal of his sin, he takes the altars and he makes them like chalk stones because they're crushed into pieces, no ashram, incense, and none of these altars remain standing. That is, after they're disciplined, all the foreign worship goes away. Of course, the question is, did it stay away? Uh, it didn't stay away, did it? In their circumstance, even though they went into exile, let's just take their, their greatest time of exile. Um, well, I guess that's debatable. But let's take the Babylonian captivity, okay? Let's take the Babylonian captivity, which was in their near future. And they finally come back after they've been praying and asking God that they might be delivered. And they come and they, they are devoted to God. And that's where the story ends. They just stay devoted to God forever. Right? Well, that's not what happens. People didn't stay devoted to God forever, but instead they continued to be disobedient. They continued. And so God obviously had an intention and had a plan. And what we see that could never be accomplished simply through people and changing their deeds. You can't do that. You can't, you can't just change the way you are and then God say, oh, okay, as long as you change and be a better person, then I'll accept you. It doesn't work that way. But we needed to have Jesus Christ to come and take root that we might grow with him and in him. So he takes all these altars and they're crushed. And that's the fruit of their discipline is that they, for a time, change and become more disciplined. They become followers of God. Okay. Now, Isaiah is looking to the future and now he's going to come back in verse 10 and he's going to say, but for now, let's talk about what's happening now. Okay. That's the future we're talking about. Let's talk about where you're at right now. Verse 10. It says, for, or yet, or nevertheless, the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down, it strips its branches. When its bows are dry, they're broken. Women come and they make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. All right, stop right there. Do you know what a healthy, lush vineyard looks like? I've never seen one with my eyes, but here's this a good picture of one. All right, looks, looks nice as far as we can tell. Now, God's vineyard is even better than this, okay? But this is a, a healthy vineyard, all right, growing some grapes. Uh, now, he says, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. The day when God will water it every moment and there will be no thorns and briars in it. So sing of that day, but as it is today, Here's what, it, here's what you look like, he says. Uh, that, that's what you look like. He says, it's solitary, it's deserted, it's forsaken, it's like the wilderness. That's what it looks like. So the calf grazes in there, it lies down, it strips its branches. Its bows are dry, its branches are dry. And women come and they say, oh, good firewood, because it's all dried up. So they come and they break the branches off and they gather them up and they burn them because it's good for nothing. How have they become a wasteland? God narrows it down to one thing. God narrows it down to one thing, and we see it. Second half of verse 11. After he says, when its bows are dry, they're broken, women come, they make a fire of them. Why? For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. Why? All for one reason. Because the people did not have 
discernment. Let's talk about discernment just for a moment. Why? Because I don't want to be the thing that continually wants to dry up and I have to face the discipline of God. Now, we're not talking about, okay, if you don't have discernment as a Christian, God's going to cut you out of his vineyard. That's not what we mean. We can't mean that. But what it can mean is that if you're part of God's vineyard by faith and you've been rooted and planted only by faith in Jesus Christ, is that there could be a time that comes, you can live in a state when you continually do not have discernment, and so you will have a tendency to want to dry up, produce bad fruit, and God will prune you over and over and water you, and you're going to be hurting and suffering and in hardship. Now later it'll, it'll yield the fruit of righteousness, but until that time, you're going to be hurting. Without discernment, this is what you're leading yourself into. I don't want to go through that over and over. I don't know about you. Have you felt, really, have you felt the hand of God on you, disciplining you? Do you know what that feels like? It hurts. It is painful. And sometimes there are seasons, whole seasons of life that are disciplined. So you can get it together and finally be trained by the discipline the Lord is giving you and start to have some discernment in your life. What is this discernment? Deuteronomy 4.6. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Same word for discernment here, the understanding. In the sight of all the peoples, when they hear these statutes, surely this will be a great nation. And this is a wise and understanding people, all because of what? Because they're keeping the statutes of God. And they say, oh, in that is wisdom. In that is understanding. The wisdom and understanding of God, discernment, comes back to what God has spoken comes back to God's law, comes back to his word. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now you might say, how can I understand what the will of the Lord is? I don't know. Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment, because we can know in that sense. Colossians 1, 9 through 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray, pray for you, asking that you might be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does it take to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? The knowledge of his will. That's what it takes. If I have the knowledge of his will, what am I going to do? I'm going to make decisions that walk on the path of the Lord. Finally, James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You think you're wise, then let's, let's see it. You think you have understanding, it will show itself. Because wisdom is discernment and with right discernment comes right action. If you make bad decisions, it's because you have bad discernment. 
We find ourselves in situations in life when we have no idea what to do or what to think, and we say, what is the will of God in my life for this situation? I don't know. How do I know the will of God? We need to make a distinction when we talk about the will of God. I'm going to give you some, just a few, few uh, ideas here to contrast. All right, first one is this. There is the revealed will of God versus the hidden will of God. When you say, I want to know the will of God, if you are saying, I want to know the hidden will of God, you're going to be looking for that thing for a long time. You know why? Because it's hidden. You will not find it. The hidden counsel of God, the hidden will of God, you will not find. People try to find it through mediums and fortune telling and whatever else you try to, I want to know the specifics of my life. What am I going to do? Who am I going to marry? How many kids am I going to have? What's my job going to be? What's my life going to be like in the next 10, 15, 20 years? How long am I going to live? You don't know and you will not know. The hidden will of God is, well, hidden. So when we say, know the will of God, be filled with the knowledge of his will, is it talking about the hidden will of God? No, it's not, okay? You can't know those things. That's where a matter of faith and trust comes into play, isn't it? God knows the hidden will of God. That's enough. How about the revealed will of God? Now, that's something that has been revealed. It's not hidden. Therefore, it is knowable. That's the first major distinction. There is a revealed will of God that is knowable. There is a hidden will of God that is not knowable. Okay? You do not know the day of your death. It's not knowable. Okay? It may be predictable, but it is not knowable. Okay? Definitively. That's the hidden will of God. Okay, next. We need to put together also these two ideas. Underneath these categories, there are also the categories of the decretive will of God and the permissive will of God. When we say the decretive will of God, we mean the sovereign will of God, the thing that God decrees that must come to pass. Will come to pass, must come to pass, spoken to existence, part of his sovereign plan. Now, you might say, but isn't everything that? Well, let's make the distinction here. God speaks something, does something, actively plays a role. You might call this the active will of God, the creative will of God, the active will of God, where God is actively involved in what's happening. Okay? Now, God is always involved. It doesn't mean uh, he's necessarily actively involved. He may be passively involved, right, which is God's permissive will. God, God is involved in all things, but let's make a distinction. It was God's sovereign decree that Jesus Christ might be born to Mary. There was no chance that that wasn't going to happen. God interjected himself into time and made it come to pass. Nothing could have stopped him from doing that. Now, take something different. God's permissive will God remains passive. He allows certain things to come to pass. But even in God's passive or permissive will, it is still the will of God, right? Because if he wanted to, he wouldn't permit it. So God permits things to happen passively. 
whereas he also ordains things or decrees them sovereignly, actively. You see these two different things here. What do we, all, we, we, we see an example of this in uh, maybe, maybe think of the story of Job. Okay, did God actively inflict Job with the sufferings that he did? No, Satan was the active agent, God was the passive agent, but it was still the will of God because he permitted it to happen. Yes, okay, there's, there's an example for you. Okay, there is one more type of will because we still say, okay, there's something that God says and actively does, there's something that God permits, but still when I say, what is the will of God for me, that's kind of not anything yet, unless we're talking about the hidden will of God, which you can't know anyway, so stop trying to know. Okay, you're not going to know. You need to get over it. You're not going to know the hidden things. Those are the things probably you want to know. What job will I have in five years? You don't know? Not going to know. You don't know the answer to that. All right? How long will I live? You will not know the answer to that. But there is something we can know the answer to that helps us with the other thing. Okay? And that is the final word I'm going to give you here. That is the preceptive will of God. The preceptive will of God. The will of God found in precepts, that is, in his commands, in his word, the thing that God has spoken to us. Now, how does that help? That is, we use the wisdom of God revealed to us. We come to a knowledge of the truth. We come to the knowledge of his will, that is, his preceptive will, because that's the knowledge of his will that we can come to, right? We can't come to his hidden will. Right? We can't come to his decretive will. How would we do that? That doesn't even make sense. It's not the same category. Right? So how do we come to the knowledge of his will? We come to the knowledge of his preceptive will, the things that he has delivered to us in precepts, the commands of God, the word of God. So how do we do that? Well, we know the word. We know what he has said. We come to an understanding of it. And then based on that understanding, we are given wisdom. And in that wisdom, we make right decisions. And what do we call that? discernment. That's where we've arrived, right? Where the people dry up for and become a wasteland. These people have no discernment. They have every right to make good decisions. I've delivered everything to them. I've, I've given them my law. I've given them my word. They need to know what my word says, and they need to start making better decisions. But as it is, these people are without discernment. That is, they're making decisions not considering what God has said. Okay, so in this then, I'm going to reference R.C. Sproul here in his teachings on the will of God, but he says, and I think rightly, that when we understand the will of God in this manner, it opens up to us a freedom of options for how we can be obedient to the will of God. What job am I to take? Well, we look through what God has said in his word where we recall, we remember, we go back and we study about wisdom, making decisions. What is work like? What is a job? As, as in my gender and in my role, what, what has God called me to do? How, how, is, how am I to function in that? So we look at, at all of that and we find it and we say, okay, whatever job then meets that criteria, I have the green light to go. Now, which job will I actually get? That's the hidden will of God. You don't know. 
but you know God's preceptive will in that I can rightly pursue this job because there is no reason that God has given me to not. Right? So in that, we have a freedom of options. We don't know what job we will get, right? That's, that's not for us to know. But we know that it is okay for us to pursue that within the preceptive will of God if we've rightly understood it. Is this making sense? I hope so. Now, ultimately, at the end of the day, what is the will of God for your life? I've said it. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to read the scripture about it. I hope you know the answer. It's so simple. What is the will of God for my life? Overarching the main goal of your life. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Done. That's it. And then he begins to list all the stuff that you ought to be sanctified from. The will of God for your life, should you be in his vineyard, is that you might be fruitful. His pleasant planting, that you might become more holy, that you might become more like Christ. That's his will for you. What's the will of God for me? For some of you, where should I go to school? For some of you, who should I marry? For some of you, whatever it is. Don't we face decisions like this all day, every day? The idea of basing our life on wisdom principles that we find in the word of God is better than every time you're faced with a decision saying, okay, what should I do here? Well, if you already know the principles of God found in the preceptive will of God, then you can better make decisions. You can be a person of discernment. Is that going to be bad for me? Is that going to lead me somewhere else? Is, does, does God say that, that this job is good for me to pursue? Is there something about this that would go against the character of God? Well, then I shouldn't do it, but it pays so well. Let's see, it goes against God, but it pays well. Let's go with it pays well. Is that the will of God for you? I can definitively say no, it is not the will of God for you. Could you possibly get that job? Yes, because it was part of the hidden will of God. But was it part of the preceptive will of God? No. So can it be both the will of God and not the will of God at the same time? Yes. I hope you understand that. God says what should be, what ought to be, but he's not telling us the things hidden. Now, so because often we go against the preceptive will of God, but within the hidden will of God, all things remain. Okay? I hope this is making sense. So we need to be an understanding and a discerning people. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But whose understanding should we lean on? The understanding found in the will of God. I don't know what the will of God is. Well, you better find out because it's been delivered to you. It's been revealed. Look for it. Search it out. The Spirit of God will give you understanding. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him grumble and complain about it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. Now, what kind of wisdom does God give in that situation? A hidden insight into his hidden will? Does he give you the power to have a decreative will of your own? speak something into existence? Or does he help you to understand his perceptive will? Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? 
He helps you to understand what he has said. And based on what he has said, we can make principles and have wisdom to make better decisions. Be a wise people. Let's finish out our text in verse 12. In that day from the river Euphrates, from the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. There will be a return to God and none will be lost. Those who are exiled will be brought back. The disciplined and exiled people of God are going to be released from their bondage and be able to come and worship him. Jesus said in John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me. Now, Jesus has insights into the will of God that we don't. It's part about being God. You get to have that privilege. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Something is planted in the vineyard of God. None of those plants are going to die. He will make sure of that. But they might be in pain for a long time. I hope you understand that too. but it is for your good. It is for discipline's sake you have to endure. So strengthen your weak knees. I know you're weakened from the discipline of God, but snap out of it, be trained by what you've been disciplined, and move forward. This is what he would tell us. Bear fruit. Repent. I'm going to end with a passage that I'd like you to turn with me. This is found in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Just a couple of verses here as we end. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. How often did he say, I wish that my people would humble themselves, that they would just seek me out, that they would be trained by their discipline. Is it God's will for you that you would be disciplined? Yes. I can say that definitively. <laughs> it is God's will that you would be disciplined. What should our approach to that be? Try to cover it up and mask it by saying that it's just Satan doing it? Follow after God and let him override Satan's power in your life so that things might go better for you? Pull yourself up. Just be happier. Or humble yourself and repent. That's what God calls us to in the midst of our discipline, 
What would it mean to draw near to God and humble ourselves and repent? That would be strengthening our weak knees. That would be coming to him, knowing there is nowhere else for me to go. I'm not going to know the hidden things of the future. That's not for me to know. I'm not going to worry about the hidden things of the future. That's not for me to be concerned with. That is God's intention. That's up to him. I can't control it. I can't know it. What I can know is what God has delivered to me and revealed to me. My job then, the will of God now, is for me to be as obedient to that as I can possibly be. And I can only do that with a humble heart that recognizes that I'm broken. And I depend on him to water me every moment. And I trust that nothing will ever grow up around me that will kill me, that will choke me out. Not going to happen. Now your body's going to die. But of what account is that to all eternity? And so we hope in him. We walk by faith. But we don't do so in such a way that is blind to say God has revealed nothing to us. But we seek out what he has delivered to us that we might be an obedient people.